Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. Really excited today. Our guest is Sarah Lemaquand, uh, who's the founding editor-in-chief of Stella, which is the country's most read Sunday magazine. And also, in addition, she's the editor-in-chief of Body and Soul, which is Australia's leading health media brand. Already, I don't know how you do it. Um, so welcome to our podcast, Sarah. Thank you, Selena. A pleasure. I know I felt a bit tired listening to that. <laughs> it's I, true, I, though. And, and uh, you can tell the audience a little bit about some of the other things that you're doing. That's, that's the main responsibilities, I guess, that's bringing in the pay every week, maybe. But you also seem to have a lot of other things which I didn't talk about. This is true. Well, we um, also we publish a couple of podcasts. Um, so we have Healthish at Body and Soul and uh, something to talk about with Samantha Armitage at Stella Magazine. And we've got uh, our Body and Soul website. And I do um, uh, a little bit of television as a media and social commentator. So I'm on the Today Show one morning a week up, up very nice and early as breakfast tv it's not civilized hours it's about a 4 30 a.m wake up once a week but can't complain because i know there's lots of shift workers in this country that do those hours every day uh and i do a little bit of um other tv now and again and also some radio so yeah i've got what would you say fingers in a lot of pies selena how do you do it <laughs> Uh, that is a very good question. Um, like everyone, I am a working parent as part of it. So I do have two um, young boys. So like every working parent and probably like every working human, uh, I certainly drop a lot of balls. Um, I definitely still working on my time management. It was very much, uh, I mean, I know we talked a little bit in one of your columns at Body and Soul about New Year's resolution or what else it's called, like a reset, or I do think there's a lot of power in whatever you want to call it, resolution, reset, just some sort of general reflection for the year ahead. It's something that I do take quite seriously. And at the beginning of 2022, I did set myself a few objectives and a few goals. And one of them was to set some more boundaries around my time. And have actually had a little bit of success with that. Um, I've learned to say no a little bit and I struggle with that. I think maybe a lot of women do struggle with that. I'm sure that uh, there's lots of women that don't and absolute uh, complete respect and admiration for those women. But I probably still have that good girl mentality, that overachieving type A that don't want to let anyone down. So I think that's been something for me to set some boundaries and hopefully that in a very round about way brings me to answering your question that I don't necessarily do it all I try to do it all and I'm trying to do less of it all but a little better and I think um, many people listening um, to this will be thinking how did you manage to get to these positions I guess how did you get into journalism what was your interest where did it come from do you want to describe a little bit of your journey there because I think that's going to be so fascinating for everyone to understand Mm. Yeah, it's a fascinating world, the media. I do come from a family where there was no one in my family that worked in the media. Um, I don't have, I didn't grow up knowing any friends or family that worked in it. It was very much a foreign world to me. I was very interested in it from early on. There was sort of, I grew up wanting three different careers. One was to be uh, a musical theatre performer. Uh, the second was to be um, a, a solicitor, so specifically a criminal prosecutor. 
and work for the Department of Public Prosecutions. And the third was to be a journalist. Now, I know people in different parts of the country listening, you know, do work experience. Uh, when I was at high school, we did work experience in year 10. So I did one week actually at the DPP, uh, which I found fascinating. And then my other week was at the local newspaper. Uh, so ultimately, it was journalism that won out. Um, but it was a very roundabout way. And I did actually start studying law for a little while. And then uh, I found that probably it was journalism that was really passionately driving me. I actually wanted to be a political journalist. So I went to university, uh, the University of Sydney. I live in Sydney. And um, I did my honours degree in government and went and did an internship in Canberra in my final year and worked in federal parliament. So it's very much on that path to becoming uh, a member of the press gallery based out of Canberra. And then I came back to Sydney to finish my thesis and my honours degree. And I um, decided to get a job working in the outskirts of the media. So I, during university, had worked as the switchboard operator uh, at reception at David Jones, the department store. And so knowing how to work a switchboard, I found myself a job at a big magazine company um, fronting the desk while I was doing my thesis and got to know some people there and ended up uh, finding my way. I had to sit a test to be a chief or a sub-editor, which for people that don't know, the people that work in magazines, also in books, of course, where you're fitting the copy and you're fact-checking, that was my inroad into, into journalism and into magazines. I love magazines. I've read magazines my whole life. When I was in high school, I would go to the news agency every week and any money I had from my part-time job as a babysitter or working at the local bakery or the local fruit and veg shop, I would go and spend on magazines. So I've always loved magazines. So it was great working in a magazine company. Why do you love magazines so much? I think there's something really um, special. Uh, it's quite escapist. So, I mean, I think we all understand the power of books and I really should be reading a lot more books in my life. But when I was a child, I devoured them. And I think probably, unfortunately, I mean, this is probably a whole other podcast, Selena, is, you know, that attention span, um, the de declining attention span, probably uh, crossing with the you know, short amount of hours in the day that are available to me um, has unfortunately meant that books to me has become something I do on holidays. You know, I read three books during the recent Christmas summer holiday, which was amazing. And what so were maybe they that just for us out of interest? Oh. I did a big cross section. So um, I read a couple of biographies, like including the Katie Couric book. So the um, American News Anchor, really fascinating book there, I think, especially about a woman in the media and, you know, so, certainly um, someone that's gone through a lot of uh, change in her career, you know, all the way through the 80s and the 90s, right through to now. Um, I read a couple of escapist ones. So a Leanne Moriarty book. I read another novel. Um, I was away and I actually gifted to someone I said this is a great beach read you read it it's too big for me to take back in my suitcase so you read it so I'm very much into passing books on um, <laughs> I'm keeping the Katie Couric book to lend to my colleague to my deputy editor who's American so I was it was great to read a few uh, books and I also read a couple of um, I suppose for one of the better word self-help books really with my work hat on a little bit for body and soul in particular so I did the whole cross-section everything through from great escapist, beach reading, you know, mindless fiction, right through to things that were a little bit 
more um, probably factually based and a bit more intellectually stimulating and have me thinking about work. But I think maybe that is the magic of a magazine is that it is that element of escapism. And I love picking it up and it's beautiful. And I, I suppose when I was younger, I didn't know what the word for it was because I didn't work there. But now, of course, I understand it's really about curation. It's about someone and a team putting something together right through from hooking you in with that amazing cover through to the features. You know, it's the light and the shade. It's the pieces that are going to get you thinking. It's the pieces that are very um, pragmatic and practical. And then there's just some, you know, beautiful escapism, fashion or whatever interests you. So I suppose that's probably what I really resonated with. Um, and so I stayed uh, working for a few different magazines and then realised that I probably was never going to go back to Canberra and never going to end up at the press gallery after all um, and ended up staying in Sydney and was, um, you know, very fortunate to, to end up um, at the company where I now work, um, which is News Corp, and went there as uh, to work at one of their newspapers back in 2005 um, as a television writer and then um, was promoted uh, over the subsequent um, four years until I went on maternity leave with the birth of my first son in 2009. And then I came back and probably reinvented myself a little bit as an opinion columnist. And um, after the birth of my second son actually became the opinion editor, uh, which I thought was a fantastic job and really enjoyed um, challenging the definition a little bit about what opinion pages at a newspaper can be in the 21st century and then was asked to launch Stella magazine in 2016. So it's wow, very part of history. Um, but, uh, yes, yeah, certainly I've worked um, yeah. like most modern journalists in, in digital print and wow. uh, audio. What was the moment like when you were offered the opportunity to found Stella? <laughs> Do you know what? I said no. Um, I, I was like, absolutely not. And um, my now boss was actually the person that offered it to me. And I was so adamant. I wasn't playing hard to get. I meant it. I didn't want the job. I knew it was going to be really um, very difficult and there's because it's a national magazine you've got a lot of different people involved and it's different things to different people and I just felt like that sort of Sunday magazine in a way as loved as it is it's so um, it, it's so difficult because it's somewhere between a magazine where you want to be delivering this great what I just talked about piece of escapism and elevated content for a largely female audience but it's being delivered delivered by this newspaper, which is still, you know, Sunday newspapers are the most read medium in the Australian um, media landscape in 2022. And so they've got, you know, that's a lot more of a male dominated, traditionally blokey domain. So I, I knew that the collision of those worlds brought with it enormous challenges from a stakeholder perspective. Um, once my now boss accepted my refusal and then came back a month later and this time he managed to talk me into it um, 
I allowed myself to be talked into it, I really should say, because obviously it, it had to be my decision and it was. But I think probably what scared me about it is what's been so great about it, because everything I've just said is true. It is actually uh, like no other um, title, really, in that it is the collision of those worlds. But yes. I think that's what's so amazing. So I think once I probably, again, this is all in hindsight, of course, I didn't see it that way. Um, but I think six years on, probably what I learned to do was what terrified me about it was that I embraced that fear and I think I probably lent into it. And I actually think that at its core is probably why the magazine's been so successful because of the unique um, platform that it has, which is why it seems so daunting. Yes, well, well done for doing it. Yeah, I think I, I understand where you're coming from when you're saying that because I feel exactly the same way. But But then you've got to think about, you know, what are the greatest problems facing people right now? I mean, you must have some handle of, of that because of your position in this yes. in this in you know this job. I, I assume you see everything, and you you're getting a. We did talk briefly before we started this about some of the biggest issues facing people, mm. and mm. maybe you'd like to say what you think some of the top ones are from your position yeah. or perspective. Well, I think it's a great question. And, um, you know, needless to say, we're obviously at a point in time where people are feeling uh, on the spectrum of, uh, you know, outright terror through to just a general unease. Um, there's certainly a fear and an insecurity, uh, which is absolutely inevitable after the two years of disruption and uncertainty that we've all gone through, the moving goalposts, uh, you know, people are scared to make plans. They're fearful of what's ahead. I mean, famous last words, uh, but at the moment that you and I are speaking, it feels like, you know, probably from um, purely a pandemic perspective that we are starting to see the end of the pandemic, you know, thanks to vaccination and thanks to the various uh, variants, you know, possibly, um, you know, getting under control. I'm reluctant to say things are yeah. back to normal. We know no. they're not. Um, and this could date very quickly, but certainly, um, you know, with all of those disclaimers, but what, what's ahead, uh, what's going to be the long-term impact on mental health, what's going to be the long-term impact on children? Um, you know, we've seen children that have had two years of their life uh, lost from education. So what's been the disruption for older children in terms of mental health and that lack of social connection? What's been the impact on younger children in terms of disruption to their learning, but also to their social networks, to the children that came in at kindergarten? I think we rightfully all take comfort in the fact that children are resilient, that's true, but we also have learned over the years that you can't just take things at face value with young people. You can't just say, they'll be fine, they'll bounce back. We went through a lot, lot worse in history because now we understand things like post-traumatic stress disorder a lot better than we did. And we know that when we're looking at past generations and we said, well, they bounced back, that actually they really didn't. But there was actually really serious emotional emotional and mental fallout. And I think it's good while some people might say, oh, you know, we worry too much. We wrap our children in cotton wool. Of, of course, as a parent, I absolutely own that that is true. But I think it's good that we're a little more mindful of the impact. And I'm just talking about young people. They're obviously um, these issues affect everyone, you know, young or old, male or female, whether you work in the home, whether you're retired. I mean, everyone's been impacted at some way. So I do 
think um, that that insecurity and that fear, I also worry, Selena, that that could trip into anger and frustration. So I think once, you know, traffic returns, once people return to our CBDs, once people are returning to their workplaces, this has to happen. It's a good thing. It's important at an individual level. It's important at a community level. It's important economically. Local businesses need it. Big businesses need it. Um, we need that, but we know that that's going to bring a lot of pressure on people. And I think we're probably going to see things like road rage and uh, disputes sort of breaking out. I think that all of our tolerance is probably a little bit lower. Um, I also, you know, when people talk about the great resignation and it is real and they say that it hasn't officially arrived in Australia. Well, I don't think that's yes. true. I mean, I've seen it on our shores. I know it's here. Um, I think that as there's a lot of great things about that. It's a lot of people are reviewing and saying, was I living my best life? What Did I have a good balance? How can I find better things? What I was talking about with me, how can I set some boundaries? But I think the other side of it is that it's also coming from a little bit of frustration and an intolerance because I think our collective fuse is, is quite short. And I think one of the problems that we're going to have is uh, I think about this a little bit, just politically, um, I feel like we're becoming more separate, more extreme than we ever have. Uh, obviously, we talk a lot about social media and the role that's played. People talk about things like cancel culture. Um, and I wonder if it's a little more complex than that. I just think that do you remember the horseshoe theory? I don't know if you're familiar with that. It was um, coined by a French philosopher and it always said, the extreme right and the extreme left on the political landscape, they're not really sitting on the polar opposite ends of a linear political spectrum. Actually, the shape is more like a horseshoe where the extreme right and the extreme left actually bend so close that they're almost touching at the end. And I think that we're a lot closer to the horseshoe theory than people would like to think. I think you've got things like QAnon and, you know, sort of on the far right, you've got a lot of um, conspiracy theory and unease, whether that's, you know, being perpetuated by sort of Donald Trump and the movement there, um, where we saw the storming of the Capitol, or whether that's people refusing to accept that COVID-19 is true, the conspiracy theories that abound. But then on the other end of the political spectrum, the extreme left, you've got this real intolerance of um, questioning anything. And, uh, you know, how dare that person or that journalist ask a question of that premier or that um, political leader? Um, you know, I don't like them and we shouldn't even be talking to them. Um, I certainly can't speak for Lee Sales, but, you know, obviously she's recently stood down as the host of 7.30 on the ABC. And, I mean, she had been relentlessly trolled for a year or two, and it's certainly not for me to um, theorise as to that played a role in her leaving, but I think it's quite fair to say that it certainly didn't make the last couple of years of her professional life any easier. And, of course, this is much bigger than, than Lee Sales or any one person, but I think that intolerance and that absolute absolute. We've always disagreed. We've always voted differently. We've always got into little arguments with our uncles at Christmas lunch. They're voting one way. We're voting. That's human nature. I'm certainly not suggesting that we all, um, you know, grab hands and sing and agree to agree on everything. But I do think 
that we're becoming even more polarized and in, incapable of seeing where the other person's coming from. And I think that um, the fear and the culture and the frustration that we're feeling after two years of the pandemic is probably going to exacerbate that. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out with the election this year. Yeah, so I'm, I'm just curious to know, seeing because you've got such a keen interest in politics, obviously, like this is more than just political. This is like even around mm. eating, <laughs> like do- types, yes. yeah, diets, like there's extreme beliefs around all sorts of things. So where, what do you think is driving it more than ever before? Is it the ability for us to have access to information 24-7 that we never used to have that used to be filtered more by newspapers, et cetera? Yes. I, I definitely think it's that. And I think what it is is the that people are now curating and controlling completely what they see. So whether that's their political news, whether as what you just talked about with diets, it's the, the aspirational models that they look to, people are really filtering what they see in a way that hasn't been done before. And the danger of that is that that limits your worldview and you're only seeing things that reaffirm your own belief system. So that might be, um, you know, I think that this is something that I aspire to. I'm only going to look at that. I'm not interested in hearing or reading the life experiences of anyone that doesn't fit with who I think is okay. If you don't share the same political views as me, then I'm not interested in listening to you. I'm going to block you or ignore you. I'm only interested in reading news reports of events happening overseas that tally up with my own worldview. I absolutely accept that everyone has has got autonomy. The 24-7 digital culture brings with it the right for you and I to watch what shows we want on on our device at the time. It's never going to go back to how it was. We're not going to be sitting there in front of a free-to-air television with one movie that we're probably all watching on a Sunday night that was happening when I was growing up, or we're not all sitting there watching the same news bulletin at six o'clock. Absolutely, those times have moved on. But the danger is um, that we've got to make sure that each of us has a role to play here. Yes, of course, there's corporate responsibilities, the social media giant, the mainstream media organisations, they all have culpability and a role to play. But ultimately, this lies in the hands of individuals. It's actually up for all of us that just as we might have sat there and listened to our uncle at Christmas lunch that we don't agree with, but because it's Christmas lunch and we don't want to cause a a fight, we'll at least hear him out. We have to keep listening to those virtual uncles and relatives and neighbours that we don't agree with because I think if we don't, we're going to end up very tinnied and you know what, we're actually going to lose not only the, um, the, the capacity or the skill to have empathy and listen, but we're actually going to lose the capacity to fight for what we believe in because we will have lost that we won't have that skill anymore because we used to be surrounded by people that just not in furious agreement and everything that we say. And we forget that actually that's why people get so shell-shocked by election results now. They go, I didn't think that was going to happen. (laughs) Everyone I knew said this and it's like exactly everyone you knew. There's always 50% of the population that don't share your worldview and we're living in these little silos where I think we're really shutting out anything that we don't agree with and it has big ramifications i have to ask you because this this happened to me 
So I, in the 2016 election, I got to vote in the US election. Yeah. And this is the beginning of the what you're just discussing. And my yeah. feed had told me, and I really firmly believe that Hillary Clinton was going to win that election. And I was on a United Airlines flight back to the US. And they woke me up on the flight to say that that didn't happen. And getting onto the flight, everyone, the flight attendants, everyone, we're all talking to each other saying 98% chance. Yep. Yes. So that's an example where, and so after that, I rec- I've worked it out what I had done and mm. um, through the likes and the feed and everything. And I, I just, I left it all. And I never, ever going to fall into that trap again, because I've, it was shocking to me that that had happened to me. So has that ever happened to you as someone in the media? It, it definitely has. And, um, you know, I definitely think about the 2016 election a lot because um, for me, similar to you, but the difference was that about a year before that, when Hillary Clinton was first going for the um, Democratic nomination, um, I was like, no, no, because they're going to lose because, you know, the Democrats had been in for eight years under Obama and I was pretty sure that the Republicans were going to get in. And I said, I was like, I don't want Hillary because, you know, she had been such a pioneer. Um, Obviously she was the most qualified candidate in American political history, whatever people think of her, that's just the facts. I'm personally a big fan, have to make that disclaimer. Um, So I, In 2016, what happened was I allowed myself to ignore my instinct, that my gut instinct told me the Republicans will win whoever's there. And then when it was Donald Trump, I think, as you say, all the feeds were saying, oh, that can never happen. Even his own party think he's crazy. It's never going to happen. And the thing is I allowed myself to get caught up in that. So like you, by the time we got to the US election night in November 2016, I thought that Hillary did have it in the bag. And I was mad at myself because I thought deep down I knew differently and um, it was a reminder to me not to fall into that trap again. Well, of- yeah, especially because you're having to be more on the, you know, unemotional side of these things. And, you know, the interesting thing about that is the New York Times, for example, uh, I mean, it's changed a lot, but during that mm. particular time they had journalists actually going to all the Trump rallies coming in to say to them, it's, this is not what you're saying on the New York Times isn't what's actually happening on the ground. And I remember because I was trying to investigate investigate afterward what I'd done. I'm like, how did that, how did mm. that happen? And that's mm. when I, yeah, mm. that's kind of, so it's not anyone's fault because if that's, if you read the New York Times or you have other feeds or whatever it is coming into you, then it's a natural, like you kind of believe what you're reading in that sense, especially around certain types of, journalism and articles and you're going with their reputation that's that's the thing because the truth is there is so much information out there and all there are so many different issues competing for our attention so even when someone might say to you what about this like a a story and you go "I, I didn't even know about that whereas for a certain section of the community that's all they've been talking about for two days so you know that's the the risk of of this and I think just to go back if I can to the US election um in in 2016 when it was um Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump the other thing I 
I find, because I know, you know, this all sounds like ancient history, but as you and I both know, we learn from the past about what mistakes not, not to repeat. And if people, you know, don't like Hillary Clinton, it's this is really just uh, one conversation. It yeah. applies for everyone because, you know, Donald Trump backers could absolutely fall into the same um, danger where you think that the echo chamber you're listening to is the whole community and it isn't. What I found frustrating about um, the 2016 election was that once that happened and you on that United plane, and as you say, even the flight attendants, everyone being shell-shocked. Now, if everyone that had would have voted for Hillary Clinton had realised that she didn't have it in the bag, there was a lot of complacency and a lot of people that were like, oh, well, that's a, that's a done deal. Yeah, we know what states like Colorado and others. Exactly. And so this is the danger. Like this has a very real-world impact when you only listen to one side of things. And that's what I was saying before when you, it means that you're losing a skill, you're forgetting how to flex that muscle where you fight for your beliefs and that you take a proactive role in doing things that are important to you. And a lot of people had to learn the hard way there that what they were listening to was not the actual full picture and they could have gotten out and voted. And when we had the Women's March a year later, I was like, if you'd just all gotten out and voted for the woman that you're now crying for, we would have had a very different outcome. So I think it's that's what I mean. It's not just a um, it's not just a theoretical conversation. It's actually a really good tangible lesson for us all to reflect on. Yes. Make sure you know the full. Don't don't fall into the comfort and the reassurance of your curated feeds because if you don't have the full picture, you can't arm yourself with um, the ability to take action and and like I say, to fight for what you believe in and just to take some few practical measures like voting. Yes, and I think, I mean, this is a really relevant conversation for us today, isn't it, as we're hosting and talking about this um, at this particular point in history. Um, so let's hope it all <laughs> goes okay. Um, so I want to switch a little bit, um, Sarah, because you know your personal story matters to the audience because you know you're you sound so amazing and successful, which you are, and everyone's like, oh, that can't be me. I'd never be able to achieve that, especially young women or men uh, trying out because journalism's been so disrupted by the digital <laughs> transformation, mm. like many many professions are currently being too. Um, so. What has been some of your greatest challenges? Like you mentioned to me some of your great challenges, like this didn't come easy for you. I know that. You already talked about working in the bakery, right, as you were buying your magazines. So why don't you talk through a couple of those mm. big things that happened in your life and how you, yeah. how you got up the next morning and kept going when I'm sure everything mm. in your body sometimes didn't want you to do that? Mm. Oh, look, I... I think, as you say, there's a lot of power because all of us look at each other and we assume that it's easier for other people and that they've got access to some sort of um, superpower that we don't have. And the truth is none of us do and we're all human and we're all frail and we're all probably second-guessing ourselves. Um, and I'm certainly um, case, you know, exhibit A for all of those things. I think my superpower would be resilience. And where that came from was probably forged in fire. So when I was growing up, I'm the third of four children and uh, grew up 
uh, with two older brothers and a younger sister. My father, who's still alive, is a re- retired sea captain. So he travelled a lot. Mm. And he was a sea captain with the Merchant Navy. So he was away a lot, uh, particularly at that time, you know, in the 1980s, it was a lot less regulated. I'm sure now people that are working in those jobs, they're sort of equal time at home and at sea. Um, but he was away for months and months at a time. So my primary caregiver was very much my mother, um, who was a stay-at-home mom. And she uh, was actually diagnosed with breast cancer when I was eight. And it was very aggressive. And she she was um, put up a great fight and we had access to great medical care. And um, she actually did manage to um, survive through that primary breast cancer uh, diagnosis and through um, secondaries that were diagnosed a few years later. But she did die uh, when I was 17 and she was uh, 50, so very young. And uh, by the time I was 17, my older brothers had moved out of home for quite a few years and they were um, living in different parts of the country. And so my father uh, went back to sea after my mum's funeral because that was obviously his job. And I actually became my sister's legal guardian on my 18th birthday. And she and I were at home on our own and I was sort of navigating the HSC there. So so she was 15. Wow, amazing. So uh, we're extremely close, she and I, to this day. Um, I think I mentioned that um, story as in obviously everyone's got their own challenges, but I think for me there was obviously there's a lot there to unpack for me as an individual. You know, there's the... Um, the loss of a parent, um, you know, obviously that's a hugely formative experience for anyone that goes through that, to be honest, I think any time in life. I mean, I have mm-hmm. girlfriends now that are, you know, losing their parents in their 40s and it's still, you know, a life-changing impact. So you certainly don't have to be young for it uh, to be a uniquely, um, you know, upending experience. But certainly I think when it does happen, when you're that young, um, it certainly brings a whole range of things with it, including just an awareness of your mortality. Um, I think having my mum diagnosed with breast cancer at such a young age, I, you know, I would be there in hospital appointments and the, you know, radiotherapy and the seeing her in hospital, you know, when she would come out. Um, I remember visiting her um, in intensive care once when she'd had very very, um, uh, you know, painstaking um, neurosurgery. And uh, I was Good Friday just before Easter. And I remember, you know, being on school holidays and seeing her in intensive care and just thinking, oh, this is awful. And you think about, you know, the impact um, that that has on on a young child, I think, is it, there is, like I say, a very heightened sense of mortality and an awareness of your own biological uh, uh, ticking um, time bomb, as I sort of call it, you know, obviously then getting older and uh, having to navigate the, I suppose, the genetic um, ramifications of that and you know, what What does that mean for me and, and what checks and balances? But what, I think what I would say, Selena, for, like I say, everyone's got their own unique challenges, but I do remember sort of getting to about 18 and thinking, I know I can get through anything because I was able to get through that and with my sister and um, there was I didn't know it was called resilience. Now I know it's resilience. And everything that's happened in my life since, awful things, so-so things, 
things that aren't on the same playing field but use up a lot of my time, which is just dealing with work disasters day in and day out. Um, There is just a resilience there. And I do think for anyone that's going through a difficult time, that's, you know, it is a cliche, but that is the silver lining of it. Even if you don't know it at the time, if you can survive it, um, there will be part of you knowing that you can get through that. And I mean, there are a whole range of cliches to that and they do sound terribly hollow. Um, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger <laughs> and all of that. You know, the things that belong on bumper stickers, but there's a real truth at the core of that. And I think that's a big part of um, my life story is learning that resilience. And, and um, you know, I'm so sorry for my mum and I'm so sad for all of us that she'll never know any of her grandchildren, um, you know, never meet my husband or really anyone that I've met from the age of 17. So there's a lot of sadness, of course, and I'm just sad for her that she didn't get to live and live her potential. Um, But like I say, uh, it's certainly, you know, inadvertently or not, she also gifted me to be as strong as I think she hoped I would be. And I like to think that I've certainly um, delivered on that. And she's definitely living through you, isn't she? I don't know if you've ever seen the the ending of, and I don't want to give away the bottom line, but Afterlife um, by Ricky Gervais. He has this really amazing, it's on Netflix, it's three episodes yeah. of the trilogy, but the way he finishes that is the most astounding, beautiful way of explaining what you just said. And that is that, yes, they're not here in physical being, but they're in you and she created you. Yes. You know, yes. and she taught yeah. you how to be resilient too. And I think, um, and this is, the, and you're gifting that to your children, no doubt. <laughs> um, I hope so. You know, it's the eternal challenge for a parent, I think. How do you pass resilience on? Yes. Yeah. Uh, by modeling it, they, they're watching yes. you, they're just copying you for sure. And I think yeah. for our audience, that uh, is, is, and the thing that I've recognized from studying the brain for a really long time, about 30 years or so is that the brain is far stronger than you give it credit for. And meaning, you know, we have great strength in there. And that's why we're doing this thing together too, right, is to help people see that they have that strength and that we believe in them too, that they can do what you did, that you can, whatever challenge you're feeling right now, know that you're way stronger than you realise that you Mm. have access to podcasts now and to columns and magazines and, and all of those different uh, materials, right? So that's what you're doing too in your lift out. Absolutely. Um, it's, maybe you it's could talk so, a little bit about that, how you're helping people there. I, I absolutely agree with that. And I remember writing an editor's letter a few years ago where we were telling the story of um, obviously as a journalist, I you meet people that have just been through the worst things, um, you, you know, just horrible things, you know, losing children in in the most heartbreaking, awful situations, Uh, you know, stories, um, you know, tragedies, what people have seen, what people live through, what what our fellow humans endure on a daily basis never ceases to equal parts horrible me and humble me to see that resilience and and people emerging from ashes that you just don't think people are capable of rising from and they do and I think for me uh, there's a lot of responsibility um, and 
in being able to share those stories for the reasons that you just talked about, Selena, because I think that's what, um, if you're ready to hear it when you're in the middle of uh, the aftermath of an awful loss and you're grieving, you're probably not immediately receptive to it, but just hearing it and seeing it and something that will resonate, something will click and you go, wait, no, no one else got through this or what did they do? And obviously what they did might not work for you, but just the power in sharing those stories. I'm so grateful for the people that continue to find the courage to open up and share their stories, whether it's on a podcast like yours, whether it's in a magazine. There is a lot of power in that. And I think that's been a real... um, privilege, like I say, for what I've done in the media. And I've certainly, you know, I've worked on campaigns before the magazines. I worked on one of the vaccination campaigns for childhood vaccination. And, you know, I still remember the the mum who's, um, you know, newborn baby died of whooping cough and, um, you know, interviewing her and her agreeing to, to send me a photo of her holding, you know, her little baby in her arms after her baby had died because she knew the power in telling other people this can happen. This is real. Let's not get complacent. And it was so hard for her to open up and share her story, but I'm so grateful she did. And as I said to her, you have saved lives by doing this. So there is that capacity in in storytelling. And ultimately that is actually what media is. You know, we go, oh, the media or the media, this or the media, that, but the truth is at its best, it has a lot of bad days, but at its best, the media is Basically, what you're doing with guests on your podcast is is talking to people, sharing their stories in the hope that something will connect with with someone and be of use. So that is probably the part of my job that I um, enjoy the most. And on the difficult days, like to look back and go, well, 50 things went wrong this week, but we also got to share that story. And obviously I should point out, obviously they're often very celebratory, great stories. Um, you know, we we tell stories, especially in Stella, that are very glittery and involve all sorts of famous people. And again, people might think there's a shallowness to that, but there isn't. I mean, I think you can relate to the story of anyone. And I think that's why, you know, films and magazines and famous books do resonate with us because there is something really comforting as well in reading a story that might be, might feel a bit unrealistic and unattainable. But if you connect with it, there's hope in that. And I think hope and resilience are really the core um, benefits of a successful media when it's done right. So can I ask you, because that just quickly, I want to tie together your love of magazines when you were 15 versus um, you getting through your passing of your mother. Do you think that there was a connection there? Yeah, that's, I think definitely there was. Um, I think probably for me, even though, again, I wouldn't have realised it at the time, when I think to, I can visualise you ask that question, I automatically saw myself in my bedroom, in my childhood family home, reading a magazine and thinking, I was probably thinking, what's the world outside of here? So I mentioned earlier, my mum was a stay-at-home mum and she obviously um, 
I think, would have gone on to study. She was very intelligent and had been a teacher before she got married. Um, She grew up at a time in the West Australian school system where you actually had to retire when you uh, got married, much less have children, which seems archaic to me, but is a very real thing. Um, And so then um, obviously, you know, for her, uh, her return to the workplace was obviously complicated by ill health. But I think it was a big part of my story and what you talked about so generously about her living on. A big part of it was that I thought here's this really competent, smart woman who didn't get to go on and achieve big things. Now, obviously, that might not have been her dream. Maybe that was my dream for her. I completely own that. But I definitely took that on board and was like, I'm going to have a career that's going to be big enough for both of us. (laughs) And whether I needed to do that or whether my mum would even really, she might have just been thinking no. But I know she would have been happy that I was doing it for me. Uh, She'd probably say, don't worry about me, but I certainly took that on. And hey, I think whatever drives you, you know, we're all complex beasts that are being driven and motivated by a multitude of things. And I've always been very, very driven, especially when I was younger. And I definitely think that was the motive for it. And I think when you talk about the magazines, one of the full circle moments for me was two years ago for Stella's International Women's Day issue, I asked Lisa Wilkinson to guest edit the issue. And she did. And she was very um, wonderful to work with. And uh, just working with her, that was the first time that she had really been back in magazines since that heyday of, you know, that the magazine culture when she was, you know, a younger journalist and she was uh, working on Dolly magazine and Clio magazine. And it took me right back to, you know, reading those magazines and Clio magazine and that sort of thing and thinking, oh, my gosh, I would never have thought when I was going and spending my bakery money on magazines that she would be guest editing my magazine. And, you know, what she said about our magazine, I mean, I'm just going to sound like I'm, a, you know, being hugely immodest, um, but it meant the world to me. You know, she was saying Stella is the sort of magazine I would be editing in today as well. Like it's doing what we did back, you know, with a magazine like Cleo back in the day. And I, I think that's probably the part of it was that just having an idea of something that I could do that was well outside of the realm of anything I'd witnessed in my childhood or my local community. I think that's, again, the power of that storytelling yeah. that I stumbled into in magazines, but people could find in a multitude of different ways. I mean, we have to we have to talk about this subject because I was just at an event last night um, uh, event by HEDEX, which is this platform trying to make higher education for good. And it was about gender diversity and inclusion. And they were mm-hmm. talking about Marcia Devlin's new book called Beating the Odds. And it's really interesting because I'm a professor, as you know, in a university as yes. well. And my mother also was, and it's from a small town and wasn't really, wasn't meant to work. She just could sneak it in because my dad had a small pharmacy in the town so she could work with beside him as a nurse and have four kids but it's it's just fascinating how uh we're having these conversations in the national press club with grace tame and others um Mm. so women in leadership issues um it's so fascinating to me isn't it the change how it takes 30 years to make some kind of little movement of the wheel forward Uh, you know it's you know i I just think it's fascinating like that you mentioned that your mother was a stay-at-home mum but could have worked but wasn't allowed to really. And then the 30 yeah. years before that, it was even, they weren't allowed to be married and worked, if you know exactly. what I mean. 
Yes, I know. It's it's it really is quite staggering. And I think with any sort of progress, you have days and sometimes weeks and months and years where you think, are we getting anywhere? You know, progress seems so slow, but it's so tiny. And then you get those moments where, you know, it's like uh, probably renovating a house where you feel like you're going nowhere. And then all of a sudden you probably sit down one day having a cup of tea and you go, actually, that that looks amazing. And you suddenly realise that all that backbreaking work, suddenly one day you're like, oh, I suddenly see it now. And you don't see it while you're doing it, uh, you know, literal brick by brick. And I think social change is the same. And it is when you look back in, in this moment and you go, wow, two generations ago, you couldn't do that. A generation ago, you couldn't do that. And you realise how far we've come, but certainly how much further there is still to go. Uh, both of those things can be true at once. And I think it's really important. For me, I always try to be grateful for what's happened. I, I've never tried to be like, oh, it's not happening fast enough. Or, But I also, um, you know, you, like me, have lived through a time where we talked about postmodern feminism and everyone was like, oh, all the work's done. There's nothing else yes. to be done. I mean, yeah. that was another really example, not isn't it? Exactly. Not, not getting complacent. Exactly. Exactly. I, yeah. And as me, I saw that happening too um, in my field of women starting to leave science because we have this valley of death thing where people want to have family or they don't have enough role models where they can see mm. women having families and still running labs or you know what yes. I mean like, or they look at what the ones that don't have families or what they've got to do to have the job and they're like oh I'm not doing that and so there was an exodus for a little while which seems to have maybe halted a bit but yeah it's that complacency where you think the work is done exactly. <laughs> and then you realize the work's just starting it's so true. And when you look at sectors like yours, I mean, the rates are still really very alarming. As you say, it's fortunately seems to be stabilising, but that's right. I mean, the the because of the, um, and I mean, I'm obviously observing, Selena, and I could be wrong, but my understanding is because of the research and the constant output that is required, that it's during those years where if you do decide to have a family, that yes, of course, you are leaning in, to use the Sheryl Sandberg, <laughs> uh, you know, vernacular, but that the rate of leaving leaning in is so exacting and so demanding that it's really not possible. I mean, I always think, how about we regroup the model a little bit? I know. How about those expectations are alleviated in a sector like yours so that yes. we can retain these highly qualified, highly educated women? Yes, we were having that conversation with the Vice-Chancellor of University of Sunshine Coast last night about the KPIs and the whole business model, really. And it's mm. a, it's a, it is a voracious uh, yearly model that can be amplified at the turn of a dial in one meeting. Do you know what I mean? It, there's no feedback on, you know, turning that dial means that you're going to lose a lot of people, very, you know, yes. brilliant people from the sector. But anyway, that's another conversation. But they are, mm. and I'm interested in your take on this about bringing men into the conversation too because um, I don't know what your experiences is here, but, you know, many of these audiences end up being women in these audiences mm. and very few mm. men mm. feel that they can come into that conversation. They feel not welcome, I think. Well, I don't really understand why, but the National Press Club one recently was a great example, and I've seen this happen around many of these conversations outside that one particular conversation. But, you know, it clearly has to be a together conversation. So I don't know what your take yes. is on how do we make that happen. 
No, well, look, first of all, I've always felt really strongly that um, it has to be men and women. And I've been a lot at odds of some of my fellow feminists, particularly maybe like five or 10 years ago when, like I say, I do think feminism was going through a difficult time because there was a prevailing view that we were in the postmodern feminist phase and we'd sort of done and what were we whinging about? And I think the danger of that is it probably allowed a lot of the, the momentum that we're seeing at the moment with, as you mentioned, like Grace Tamer, Brittany Higgins and the new relevance that I think they've brought to mainstream feminism in Australia, which I think is great, um, is that it was very much the voices on the um, edge, if you like, were starting to really cannibalise the movement and there was very much this view like you know don't come in don't mansplain just just listen and and not have a voice now I think one of the things I would say to people and if there are men listening that say I just don't feel like I can be involved feminism is not exclusive to women feminism is an ideology it's a belief system and it is simply that there is equality now I don't think people should get tripped up by other definitions I'm not talking about intersectionality by the way that yeah. that's obviously yeah. very important you know where if know. if you're a woman of color you or you know you're a woman from a different class system or a different culture that's absolutely legitimate what I'm talking about is you know there's all this oh feminism is about choice or I can make this choice because I'm a woman that makes it feminine no, 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 no. It's simply about equality. So equal responsibility, but also equal uh, right to be represented in your parliament, to work in all fields, to have equal pay. So it is a give and a take. So there are some concessions that we actually make for women. For instance, we say, oh, it's my right. Um, you know, not to work. I, I married someone that's got a lot of money and I don't think that I should have to work, of course, but that's a right that extends to men as well. What if a man is financially independent and he doesn't want to work? We can't make those things the domain of women. Uh, we've got to have a level playing field. So my definition of feminism, like I say, is simply do you believe in equality? And if you do, it does not matter whether you are a man or a woman, whether you are transgender, if you believe in that, then welcome. You are a member of the club. Come on in and let me give you your feminism welcome kit because you have a, a seat at the table. You have a role to play. I think the role of male allies is really important. And not only is it important, we're actually not going to get anything done unless we've got a really solid part of the population with us. So I've never been interested in the feminist infighting and the bickering and the you're not doing feminism right and this is what feminism should look like. No, 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 no. Let's just stay focused on, on equality. Uh, is Does that sound simple? Yes, because anything that is ever achieved in this world is where we boil it down to a simple objective and a simple approach. Yes, I know. So that's a great answer. I've never thought of it in, quite in that uh, way. Um, it's really, yeah, because people are looking for some kind of, someone was asking me last night, we need some kind of new way of looking at this, some like uh, not just around regulations and teaching modules and all of these other things, but we need to come at it at a completely new angle in some sense to make a breakthrough. I mean, I think Grace Tame did a great job, to be honest, um, 
people and Marcia Devlin's book Beating the Odds is also excellent, but people don't like people that are agitators, um, but which is unfortunate. But I think that's also the fact of what women are meant to be just cute and quiet too. And so when and so right. they get a lot of they get a lot of bad feedback for speaking up as well. So it's very complicated. But thank you for that. Um, great thought and we just want to close out because I know you're so busy and we're so grateful to have you for this length of time you've offered so many great insights um I love what you said about the magazines and their potential to help people I think that's wonderful I know it's benefited my mother for a really really long time when she was in a small country town and raising four kids on her own with my dad and everything but you know back in that generation and she reads every single magazine and knows everything about everyone. Oh, that's so lovely to hear. Yeah, I love yes. that. Yes, and I'm always like, Mom, isn't it in the same? Anyway, um, but now <laughs> I've got a whole new take on how that would have helped her survive uh, where she didn't want to be really. Yes. Like it's yeah. given me a whole new take on her her life in that in Nanango actually near Kingaroy where she was. So that's wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, she'll love listening that's to this great. podcast too by the way so she, oh, loves all, she loves everything you're doing so thank you oh my oh well thank well thank you so much to her for reading and um yeah I love hearing her story that's amazing yeah so do you want to just let's just touch quickly on your recent interest in in sober curious because as you know I my a lot of my work has been around understanding the brain for alcohol addiction and developing all sorts of things in America and then back here around the concepts of neuroplasticity. So I'm interested in how you found this network um, and, and mm. how you became curious about the sober movement that's been happening around Australia. It is a real movement and there's definitely uh, serious momentum behind it. My, my story is um, so the spring of 2020, so coming up to 18 months ago, um, obviously had just come through collectively. We'd all had that first year of lockdown. Obviously different people were in and out of lockdown depending on where they lived. For me it was, um, you know, a difficult year. Uh, Obviously, a lot of people were doing it much tougher than me, but I did have two young children that were remote learning or homeschooling, as uh, us parents call it. Uh, I was, um, at that's actually when I became editor-in-chief of Body and Soul, so I had to relaunch that magazine from my kitchen table while my children were homeschooling at the other end of the said kitchen table. Uh, you know, I was um, redesigning with my art director the logo for Body and Soul on a, I still have that bit of paper because I've got my crazy, so there was a lot going on and um, you know, obviously, uh, with as with other people, you know, some um, it was not an easy time for any of us. And as I was coming to the end of that year, I just felt like I had started to rely on alcohol more than I wanted, and that it was something that I was really having to consciously think: is today an alcohol-free day? Now we've published stories of people that. Um, are at the extreme end of the alcohol spectrum. Obviously, as you know, the word alcoholic has, you know, fallen out of favour, but we have readers that still say, well, I do identify as an alcoholic and we've published those stories. And I think that's really powerful where there's a medical diagnosis and that's obviously a really unique experience. But where someone like me fell in, 
was clearly not at that end. Um, I shouldn't say clearly because I think the whole thing is that there are actually a lot of women in their 30s and 40s and 50s that have a very unhealthy relationship with alcohol. So I shouldn't say clearly because actually I know some women that are at the extreme end have sought medical help and their doctor's gone, you look fine. I don't really think mm-hmm. that you're an alcoholic. There are still people in our medical community that have a very fixed view of what someone with extreme um, alcohol dependence looks like and they still think that you're drinking out of a paper bag in you know, um, sort of looking like a homeless person. And clearly it's a much more complicated issue than that. But for me, it was very much uh, a bit of a challenge. And I thought, I'm just going to stop for a week and then just see. So I wanted to do a reset. And I thought, you know, I'll just go a week, two weeks, became three weeks, became four weeks, just take a break from all alcohol, just remove it as a variable from my life. So I'm not thinking each day, can I have a drink today? Oh, no, I'm getting up at four o'clock. I won't have a drink. That conversation never happened. It was just like, no, we don't drink. And it was so liberating because freeing up that part of my brain to not be negotiating or thinking about it every day, I've actually decided 18 months on, I'm much better off with just not having that as an option. Now, does it have its downsides, you know, if I'm at dinner or something and what's the harm in having a glass of wine? Absolutely. And if you want to have a glass of wine, have it. And most people that I meet with do. And I say, please, please, I'm not drinking. You go ahead. So it's certainly not um, a killjoy. But for me, it's just been easier just to remove it completely from the equation. And I think it's really um, been good for me mentally because there is no more smokescreen and there's no crutch. It's just me. And for better or worse, I've had to fumble through that. And I love that. And I don't think at this point, famous last words and all of that, um, I don't think that I'll ever drink again. Wow, amazing. Um, and the other that 30 to 50-year-old women, um, I forget what they call them, but uh, call the concept, but it's, uh, it's a very real one because um, there's like what you talked about, the paper bag, that's at the far, far end of the spectrum where there's huge liver damage. It's almost irreversible. And then there are women um, getting, and it's not just women, there's lots, but let's just talk about the women, um, getting diagnosed with fatty liver disease, um, pancreatitis, um, things that are really dangerous and irreversible. So there's this inside damage that you won't be aware of either. That's right. And, you know, I don't know anyone that hasn't stopped, even if it is for a, you know, a finite period and hasn't felt better. And it would be reasons that, you know, us lay people can't necessarily articulate. But what you've just talked about, Selena, that there's a very real, um, you know, physical and physiological um, things that we're doing to our bodies. And I, like you, I do um, think there's a lot of work to be done, which is why I talk about the story. I think for women in their 30s and 40s and 50s, because we're so, we're juggling so many things and alcohol is what we call we tell ourselves it's a reward. We tell us that's the off button. So we're all reaching for the off button. And that's partly why COVID exacerbated it, because how do you possibly make that switch off between whatever time it is, five, six, seven, eight o'clock at night to unwind if there isn't that glass of wine? Well, I'll tell you what did it for me. I I went and bought myself two beautiful glasses and I put alcohol-free wine in that and that's my clock off. 
off and I still have the ceremony of having a drink every night and it's in a beautiful glass. Uh, it just doesn't have alcohol in it. And I don't work for any alcohol-free companies. And I say this completely unsponsored, clearly. Uh, but I just think to anyone that is sober curious, it's come a long way. And I thought that, you know, alcohol-free wine would taste like grape juice, which I'm reliably <laughs> informed it did not so long ago. Yeah. There's so many good options and I don't feel like I'm slumming it anymore. So we're all seeking, like I say, for that off button. There's other ways to find it. And look, if for you having a glass of wine, you know, I know lots of people that do is great. Then, you know, you do you. That's certainly my message to people. But I think if you're struggling with it, um, there, there are other options. And like yeah. I say, once you get into that habit, I honestly don't feel like I'm missing out. Well, so I guess the bottom line from a neuroscience perspective is basically alcohol, sugar, gambling, whatever you want to call it, is medicating stress. And that's from mm. a brain architecture point of view. And um, and if you don't get hold of what you turn, you called it the off button. I call it stress. It goes into your body, and and you have to find ways to be able to prevent the way stress is wiring your brain. And that's basically yes. why I write these books and why I came out of my lab to talk to the public too, is for them to understand that if you don't take care of stress, stress takes care of you and it does things mm -hmm. by helping you reach for alcohol or food or whatever it is that you need to feel better to overcome it. And I actually think a lot about the COVID-19 pandemic and how hard it's been on young families. And, mm. and because it's because I raised my kids in their 20s, um, I don't know how you did it uh, because I remember having to go to work and, you know, when you're running a big lab and you're dropping the kids off to school, and I hate to say this, but it's like a break too yeah, when you're absolutely. trying to juggle everything and a career is, and then to imagine them taking care of their schooling. I just, like I put myself in your shoes and I'm like, I don't know if my kids would have learned anything at all. <laughs> well, well, I have to admit, Selena, I don't think that my kids did either. To be honest, I think I was a complete failure at homeschooling. If a teacher was giving me a report card, it would probably be a D minus. But I also think um, a lot of us just had to give ourselves permission that we were doing the best we could and we were just trying to, in every house that looked different. That's the other thing. You know, my brother, he's, uh, his daughter, my niece, she really loved it. You know, she so other kids relish. My boys were probably like, if I'm not in a classroom with a teacher watching me, forget about it. I'm, I'll pretend I'm on Google Classroom. I'm just going on to my video game. So, you know, different children as well. Everyone had their own circumstances. And I just thought if I'm just trying to navigate this a little bit with them, I just felt I had to cut myself some slack. And um, so I certainly wouldn't want to give you the impression that I was running like some operational school because it was, it was pretty, it was pretty relaxed. <laughs> wow. It's amazing, isn't it? Like, it's just amazing thought. Like how many young it's a crazy been. time in history. We used to say to the boys, you know, one day this will be written about in the history books and people will talk about your generation and how you were home from school for this couple of years, the same way that you are studying other amazing chapters in history. Yeah. Um, you know, because it was like you are, well, we're always all living through history, but there's some moments where you go, okay, this is unusual. And that was certainly one of them for yeah. everyone, I think, you know, for the wider community, for the educators, for the parents, for the kids themselves. 
And now um, as we feel like 2022, there might be a little bit of a break on that. It feels like now maybe who knows what's ahead. <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. Anyway, well, thank you so much for all the work you're doing, um, all the magazines you're producing to help people feel a little bit better. I think that's really wonderful. And thank you for the opportunity. Um, I think one of the one of the highlights of my life so far is being able to finish a cycle at the coffee shop. My husband, Martin, brings over Your Body Soul magazine and opens it up and we see uh, a brain health title in the black yeah. at the top that you have no idea how that uh, that is such a the best thing I've ever seen because you know when you think about how you want to help slip slop slap moments for people to feel a little bit better like skin cancer with sunscreen for me that's like that one little thing that they might be able to do every month knowing that it's going to be helping their brain health is probably one of the greatest things that I had hoped to achieve in my life so thank you for oh, that that's opportunity. amazing Oh, well, no, thank you. Thank, honestly, thank you for your input. And I think that the advice that you uh, offer is invaluable and it's given in such an accessible and practical fashion, which is so important, especially when you're talking, you know, to a mass mainstream audience. So it's, it's been uh, an absolute honour having you in the magazine. And thank you so much for having me um, on your podcast today. It's been really lovely to speak to you. Yeah, well, let's hope we get some more of those 15-year-olds in the <laughs> reading those magazines. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I'll definitely aim for that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sarah. Pleasure. Thanks, Alina. Thanks.